I'm your host, Sierra, and this is Dirty Pop. On January 12, 1983, police officers arrived at the workplace of Terry Martin in Brattleboro, Vermont, under somewhat bizarre circumstances. Terry's twin sister, Robbie, died a few months prior, and when Terry came into town to grieve with Robbie's husband, John Homan, she immediately raised red flags. You see, many people thought that Terry and Robbie were too identical. In fact, people were convinced that they were the same person. Amateur detectives looked into Terry's backstory, and it didn't add up, so they called the police to investigate further. When police approached Terry, they assumed that she had simply stolen someone's identity. But when she revealed she was a fugitive who was accused of a crime in a small town over 1,000 miles away, she completely shocked everyone. What happens when the love and money and material items supersedes the love we have for our family? Or when the ones close to us are more valuable dead than they ever were alive? This is the tale of Marie Healy. Audrey Marie Frazier was born on June 4th, 1933, to Huey and Lucille Frazier in the Blue Mountain area of Anniston, Alabama. At this time, the Blue Mountain area was a rural community, mostly made up of poor mill workers. Marie was born into a working-class family, and due to this, her parents weren't around a lot. They spent the majority of their time working long hours in mills, and they trusted two of Marie's aunts to watch her. Marie was the apple of her parents' eye, and they felt guilty for not being around enough. So when they were around, they spoiled her, buying her the best clothes they could afford. They would also never discipline her and would allow her to throw tantrums, so she always got her way. In 1945, the Fragers moved into the city of Anniston, a small town located about 100 miles southeast of Huntsville. The main reason for this move was to give Marie more opportunities. Her parents were used to hard work for long hours and small pay, but they wanted Marie to have more. At this time, a lot of children of mill workers quit school early to begin working at the mills, mostly due to financial reasons. Marie's parents, on the other hand, thought that Marie was beautiful and bright, and they wanted her to finish high school and hopefully one day find work as a secretary. That same year, Marie started 7th grade at Quintard Junior High School. Up until this point, Marie had gone to school with kids whose parents were poor mill workers, like herself. But now, she was going to school with kids of wealthy mill owners. She didn't feel like an outsider, though. She felt like she was right where she belonged. Marie would flourish here. She quickly made friends, excelled in her studies, and even joined the student council. At the end of the school year, she was even voted the prettiest girl at Quintard. Soon after, she got the eye of Frank Healy, who at the time was a junior in high school. By the following year, Marie and Frank were dating and in love. Marie's parents were a little disappointed by this relationship. They hoped that Marie would find a partner from a wealthy family who could provide her with a good life. Frank, on the other hand, was also from a working-class family. But what he lacked in money, he made up for with his love and loyalty for Marie. Marie and Frank continued to date after she went to high school and he graduated from high school. Throughout high school, Marie remained focused on her studies and joined the Future Teachers of America, 
and the Commercial Club, a club that helped girls plan for secretarial careers. Marie was a bit of a hot commodity. Many boys were interested in her. She was beautiful, she dressed nice, smart, and she was pretty graceful. But at the time, she only had eyes for Frank. Meanwhile, Frank joined the Navy and was assigned to Guam. But the entire time he was there, he only thought of Marie. On May 8, 1951, while Frank was on leave, he and Marie married. Marie was just 17. The couple didn't really have a honeymoon period, though. They were forced to separate soon after they married. Marie remained in Anderson to finish high school, and Frank was assigned to Long Beach, California. Frank would send Marie money from his checks so that she could take care of herself and eventually pay her way to California. But Marie spent all the money on nice clothes and things she wanted. So by the time she was supposed to join him, she had no money left and seemingly no way to California. Fortunately for her, Frank's parents would scrounge up enough money for her to go. After she finished high school, Marie joined Frank in California briefly before he was reassigned to Boston in 1952. Not long after this move, Marie became pregnant with her first child. Frank was discharged from the Navy and the family moved back to Anderson. Their son, Michael Healy, was born on November 11, 1952. Back in Anison, the Healys seemed to settle into the American dream. They bought a home and they both found work. Marie was a secretary and Frank worked in the shipping department of Standard Foundry. The Healys made a decent living, but Marie was a spender and she was constantly buying new clothes and furniture. So while they're able to pay their bills, they have little money left over to put into savings, and this caused a lot of fights between the pair. For instance, in 1959, after being confronted about her spending, Marie began taunting Frank with love letters she claimed were from men in town. She showed him the letters, but wouldn't let him get a good look. And after they argued about them, she tore the letters up and threw them into the trash. When Frank retrieved the torn up letters, he was shocked to see Marie's handwriting on them. It became obvious that she'd written the letters to herself. When he confronted her, she confessed that she wrote the letters because she thought that he didn't love her anymore. The couple was able to make up and move on. And before the end of the year, Marie became pregnant with her second child. On January 14, 1960, they welcomed a daughter they named Carol Marie Healy. At this time, Frank was promoted to foreman of the shipping department of Standard Foundry. Marie continued her work as a secretary, but unlike Frank, she moved from job to job quite frequently. All of her bosses adored her, but Marie always had trouble with her coworkers, mostly due to her being rude and nasty to them so she never stayed at any job for long. And she told her friends and family that she always felt ostracized at work. She was able to find new work, though, due to many of her old bosses giving her good recommendations. In 1962, the Healy's would move from their starter home to a nicer home closer to the wealthier community in Anison. Marie's parents, Huey and Lucille, would move into the home with them. Marie was extremely image-obsessed and wanted to be known and respected in her community. 
she made sure that herself and her family were also dressed in nice clothing. And by all outward appearances, the Healy's looked like the perfect family. They were extremely involved in the community. Frank joined the Elks Club and the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Marie helped out at the First Christian Church and even volunteered at her children's school. While Marie could be extremely charming and helpful, it would become known around town that she had another side to her and she would often throw tantrums in public when she didn't get her way. Due to the success in the Healy's careers, they were able to provide their children with pretty much anything they wanted. Marie wanted the appearance of being a devoted wife and mother, but while she loved her family, she could be extremely cold and distant from them. Marie raised her children a lot like she was raised. She never disciplined them and relied on her mother-in-law, Carrie, to do the majority of the parenting. She did have a special bond with Mike, though. Carol, on the other hand, was nothing like Marie wanted her to be. Marie thought that Carol was plain looking and hated the fact that she was a tomboy and extremely close to her father. Frank and Carol loved to go to baseball games, and that was something Marie despised. She wanted a daughter who was girly, and she was jealous of the relationship Frank and Carol shared. She would sometimes call Carol a lesbian as a way of taunting her. Carol later told the TV show Snapped, quote, I couldn't please her no matter what I did. She didn't like what I wore. She didn't like how I thought. She didn't like who I hung out with, unquote. Over the next few years, the relationship between Marie and Frank became rocky. Marie continued her outrageous spending and would even take out loans. She would rush to get the mail from the mailman every day and hid her many bills from Frank. Then, when she began to get too many bills to keep up with, she rented a P.O. box to redirect bills from coming to her home so that Frank wouldn't see them. Her need for new things was insatiable, and she quickly racked up charges that she had no intention of paying. She used Frank's good reputation for paying bills on time to secure new lines of credit around town that she also didn't pay. Frank was a hardworking man who prided himself for paying his bills on time. So when he caught wind of Marie's mounting debt, he was extremely upset. He tried to rein her in, but Marie was used to having her way and didn't like to be told what to do. So just like any other time when Marie was caught out, she would once again throw a tantrum. Frank was extremely upset, but he didn't want to lose his wife. So, even though he was frustrated, he backed down. In 1972, Marie secretly purchased a life insurance policy worth around $25,000 on Mike, where she was a sole beneficiary. In early 1974, Mike suddenly became sick with some type of stomach ailment that persisted for a few months. When Mike moved out of the home to attend college, his mystery illness suddenly went away. Later that year, Frank too became sick. He experienced nausea, vomiting, and extremely painful stomach aches. Initially, he thought that he had the flu or something and that one day he would get over it. One day, Frank had to leave work early because he felt so bad. 
When he entered his home, he found Marie in bed with her boss, Walter Clinton. Unbeknownst to Frank, Marie had been sleeping with her bosses for years to obtain money, gifts, and good performance recommendations. By this point, their son Mike had moved out and was married and attending Atlanta Christian College with the hope of being a pastor. Frank called Mike and informed him of his mother's infidelity. Mike would later say in an interview with a TV show, Unsolved Mysteries, quote, I think my father was going to divorce her. And I think that was one circumstance that she would not allow to happen. She placed a high value on prominence and reputation, and to go through a divorce would have destroyed that, unquote. Frank was extremely hurt by this cheating revelation, and this caused even more tension between the pair. But Frank had bigger issues to deal with, so for the moment, he put his issues with Marie to the side. He was still sick, and as time went on, he felt worse, not better. Frank simply dealt with his symptoms throughout the rest of 1974, but when he was still sick in 1975, he grew extremely concerned. He decided he needed to see a doctor and set an appointment with a family doctor, Dr. Earl Jones. Frank told his doctor that he had nausea and tenderness in his abdomen. And based on those symptoms, Dr. Jones diagnosed him with a viral stomach ache and prescribed him a capsule to reduce his symptoms. Hopeful, Frank began to think he would soon get better. To help accelerate his healing, Marie started to give him medication in injection form. Marie, obviously, was neither a nurse or a doctor. So when Frank's sister, Frida Adcock, asked Marie about the injections, Marie simply told her that the injections were prescribed by Frank's doctor. This explanation satisfied Frida, and she asked no more questions. On March 23, 1974, at around 3 a.m., Marie found Frank dazed and wandering around in the front yard in his underwear. She rushed him to the local <clears throat> She rushed him to the regional medical center where tests showed that his liver had failed. The next few days were rough for the family. Frank was agitated, hallucinating, and jaundiced. Mike returned home to support his family, and at one point even had to restrain his father from attempting to jump out of the window. Various tests were performed on Frank that indicated a malfunction of the liver, and he was diagnosed with infectious hepatitis. Marie appeared to be the ultimate doting wife during this time. She never left Frank's side and was extremely hands-on with his care. In the early morning hours of May 25th, Mike left the hospital to get both of his grandmothers so that they could see Frank. When he returned just a few hours later, he found his mother asleep and his father dead. With Marie's permission, an autopsy was performed on Frank. His cause of death was revealed to be infectious hepatitis. Frank's body would be married on May 27, 1975, with Mike giving a sermon at the ceremony. Outwardly, Marie seemed shocked at the sudden death of her husband, but unbeknownst to the rest of the family. Marie knew exactly why he had died, and it wasn't infectious hepatitis at all. Marie had been slowly slipping him arsenic in his meals for months. According to the University of Maine, arsenic is a highly potent element commonly found in rat poison. 
when ingested in the human body over a short period of time, arsenic can lead to symptoms like vomiting, stomach and throat pain, and diarrhea. Prolonged exposure to arsenic can lead to shock, seizures, coma, or even death. Marie was able to collect on Frank's life insurance, which was worth around $31,000. She wasted no time spending this money. She bought herself a new car, clothes, and jewelry. She was also pretty generous with her money, buying things for her family like cars, clothes, furniture, and appliances. Mike and his wife, Terry, would move in soon after to support Marie. Life in the Healy family was not peaceful at all, though. Marie and Carol were always at odds. Marie was also jealous of the time that Mike and Terry spent together, and she demanded that Mike spend more time with her. Then Terry suddenly became sick, experiencing pain in her stomach. She was in and out of the hospital constantly and even suffered a miscarriage. The tension and stress in the house were too much for Mike and Terry, so they found a small apartment nearby. But as soon as they moved out, Marie's home mysteriously caught on fire, and Marie, Carol, and Lucille moved in with Mike and Terry. Now, in an even smaller space, the tension was even higher. When the repairs were finally finished on Marie's home, the apartment next door to Mike and Terry also abruptly burned down, forcing them to have to move back in with Marie. This move was short-lived, and Mike and Terry moved to Papano Beach, Florida a few months later. With Mike and Terry gone, Marie was extremely upset. She felt like she had no support system. And plus, it seemed like bad things continued to plague Marie for the next few years. Lucille, Marie's mother's health, began to, began to deteriorate. Marie became her mother's caregiver and even administered injections that she claimed were painkillers. In January of 1977, Lucille died, causing Marie's feelings of abandonment to grow. Plus, she and Carol were always at odds. Whenever Carol would have friends over, Marie would have these violent outbursts. She was convinced that her daughter was a lesbian, and that was something that Marie thought would have a negative effect on Marie's reputation. Soon after, the duo began receiving phone calls of heavy breathing that frightened both Marie and Carol. But things quickly escalated when Carol and Marie returned home one day to find that their home had been broken into and they would find a small fire in Marie's closet. Marie was convinced that she was being stalked and she became familiar with many officers at the Anderson Police Department. She would be in contact with police on an almost daily basis. The Anderson police would also become familiar with Marie for different reasons. Several businesses in town were filing complaints on Marie due to her writing bad checks or simply never paying her bills. Marie and Carol moved to Florida with Mike and Terry to escape this treatment. Marie once again found work as a secretary, but she began charging hundreds of dollars on Mike's credit card that she promised to pay back but didn't. She and Carol continued to argue a lot. This arrangement did not work for Mike and Terry, 
who had just welcomed their first child and were in need of peace in their own home. So within months, Marie and Carol were back in Anison. When Marie and Carol moved back to Anison, they found refuge at Frank's sister Frida's home. But even there, the stalking continued with phone calls of people breathing, fires set at the house, cut phone lines, and many items going missing from the home. But even there, tragedy would strike when she too began dealing with sudden nausea and vomiting. Plus, Frank's life insurance was long gone, but Marie continued to spend like there was no tomorrow and never would pay any of her bills. She even began to give her son Mike Healy's name to creditors and told him and told them that he would take care of it. On July 27, 1978, Marie secretly obtained a life insurance policy on Carol worth around $39,000. Marie didn't really pay many of her bills, but Carol's life insurance policy bill was always paid. And following Marie's sick pattern, by April of the next year, 19-year-old Carol suddenly became sick. Carol's early symptoms were mild. She mostly experienced nausea that she initially attributed to a hangover. But when weeks passed and she wasn't feeling better, her mother admitted her to the hospital. While in the hospital, Marie would secretly give Carol injections that she promised would make Carol feel better. Instead, Carol would get sicker and weaker. Mike returned to town to confront his mother about her spending. He wanted her to cash in on Frank's stocks so that she could repay her debts. But Marie wasn't interested. Mike threatened to, quote, pick her up and physically put her in the car, unquote, and take her to the bank. She agreed and then made him a large breakfast. After this breakfast, Mike suddenly became sick and they were not able to make it to the bank. He quickly recovered and then returned home to Florida. Meanwhile, Carol's mystery condition continued to worsen. Marie appeared to be the perfect doting caregiver. She never left Carol's side and tried to comfort her the best she could. Outwardly, she seemed puzzled on what could be causing Carol to be sick, even though she knew that arsenic was. Carol was in and out of the hospital over the next few months, and her doctors were not able to make a diagnosis. Of all of the people that Marie poisoned, Carol seemed to be affected the worst. Her nausea and vomiting were, were accompanied by tingling in her hands and feet and muscle weakening. Around this time, Marie began to keep Carol sequestered from the world. She told everyone that Carol had leukemia and that and she wouldn't allow anyone to see her or even talk to her on the phone. In August of 1979, Carol was admitted into the regional center in Anison for the fourth time. Her doctor, Warren Sorrell, was puzzled and advised Marie to take Carol to the psychiatrist, thinking that her symptoms may simply be psychosomatic. Meryl took Carol to Dr. John Elmore, and she told him that Carol was suicidal. Dr. Elmore admitted Carol into the psychiatric ward at Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Meanwhile, in Florida, 
Mike began to put two and two together. It was strange to him that his sister and father had the same symptoms, and he too experienced them, if only briefly. Mike realized that something was seriously wrong and that his mother was likely the cause. Now, I know you're probably wondering why it took someone so long to realize that Marie was poisoning people. But Mike told the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, quote, During the time that everyone was getting sick, I think the time between those illnesses was sufficient enough not to cause anyone to question what was going on. However, in every individual case, I think someone, a relative in the family, suspected that something was going on and later something was going on. And like me, later on, something is, but what? Unquote. He contacted the Calhoun County coroner to try to get his father's body exhumed. But the coroner told him, that they would need solid evidence for that to be possible. Luckily for him, Carol's friend, Eve Cole, had secretly spoken to her on the phone. And Carol shared in passing that her mother had been given her injections. Concerned, Eve told Mike's aunt, Frida, who then told Mike. After confirming this with Carol, Mike got in contact with Dr. Elmore, who stopped Marie from visiting Carol. Marie became extremely upset by this request and removed Carol from his care the following day. She then had Carol admitted into the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. On September 20th, 1979, Marie was arrested in the waiting room of the hospital for writing around $6,000 in bad checks. The arrest most likely saved Carol's life. With Marie away, Mike demanded that Carol be examined again. Carol's new doctor, Dr. Brian Thompson, he discovered Aldrich Mee's lines on her fingernails, which are white lines running across the nails, a telltale sign of arsenic poisoning. Her hair would be tested next, showing that it contained 100 times more arsenic than what was normally found in the human body. In October of 1979, Mike once again requested that his father's body be exhumed for another autopsy. In his request, he detailed the family's suspicions and pointed to his sister's illness, his father's death, and his mother's financial problems. On September 26, 1979, Lieutenant Gary Carell conducted a taped interview with Marie during which she tried to avoid answering any questions. She would eventually admit that she did in fact give Carol injections that she claimed were medicine. She told him that she got the injections from the mother of a nurse at Caraway Methodist Hospital. Further investigation would show that no nurse with a name or who matched the description worked there. Marie continued to play innocent, but evidence was mounting. Frank's body was finally exhumed on October 3rd, 1979. Nine days later, Frank's sister, Frida Adcock, found a vial of arsenic in Marie's former home. Plus, arsenic was in the purse that she had when she was arrested. With this mounting evidence, Marie was charged with the attempted murder of her daughter on October 9th, 1979. When Frank's toxicology report came back, it indicated that his arsenic levels were between 10% and 
and 100% higher than that of the normal amount of arsenic found in the human body. The body of Marie's mother, Lucille, was also exhumed, and while her toxicology reports indicated elevated arsenic levels, she died from cancer. Marie's bill was set at a ridiculously low amount of around $14,000. And Mike, who was confused, but still feeling some loyalty to his mother, convinced five residents in Anison to help put up her bail. On November 11th, 1979, Marie was released on bond. Her lawyer, Wilfred Lane, put her in a motel in Birmingham, where she was supposed to remain until her case went to trial. Marie spent her time calling close family and friends and asking them for money. However, on November 18, 1979, Marie went missing. When her lawyer arrived at her motel room, he found her room in disarray, with clothes all over the place. A note was written that said, quote, Lane, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me, unquote. When investigators came to the scene, it was obvious that Marie had staged a kidnapping and she was officially on the run. That same day, Frank's mother, Carrie, died. Her official cause of death was cancer, but hair analysis would show that she too had elevated levels of arsenic in her body. On January 11, 1980, an arrest warrant was issued for Marie for the murder of Frank Keeley. Marie was now a fugitive, so she laid low for a while before popping up again in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She now called herself Robbie Hannon. In February of 1980, she met a man named John Homan. At this time, John was a 33-year-old divorcee who owned a boat-building business. John was immediately attracted to Robbie. She was beautiful, confident, and charming. John, on the other hand, was awkward and insecure, and in disbelief that she would even be into him. Robbie told him that she was from Texas and had recently lost her two children in a car accident. She also told him that she was 35 when she was really 46. The pair bonded over their pain, and before long, they moved in together. By October of 1980, Robbie and John moved from Florida to Marlowe, New Hampshire. John found work at Findings, Inc., which made small parts for jewelry. Marie got a customer service job at Central Screw Corporation in nearby Keene, New Hampshire. They quickly settled into their new lives. As time went on, Terry became more comfortable sharing her life story with her new co-workers and friends. She told them about her children's deaths, her Texas upbringing, and the large inheritance that she would one day claim. She also shared that she had a twin sister named Terry who still lived in Texas. Robbie and John married on May 29, 1981. Everything seemed perfect, but then Robbie became sick. She told John that she had a rare disease and that she didn't have long to live. As the months went on, she became frail and complained of constant headaches. In September of 1982, Robbie left town. She told her husband that she needed to go to Texas to find a treatment for her her illness, and that her twin sister, Terry, will look after her while she healed. Robbie did, in fact, board a plane to Texas, but she didn't stay there for long. By the end of the month, Marie returned to Papano Beach, Florida. 
Marie, obviously, wasn't sick at all, but she needed to lay low before she could enact the next part of her twisted plan. So for a while, she stayed in Florida where she bleached her hair and once again found work as a secretary. She also started going by the name Terry Martin and started to lose weight. On November 10th, 1982, she called John and informed him that Robbie was dead and that her final wish was to have her body donated to medical science. Devastated, John asked Robbie to come into town so that they could meet and grieve together. The following day, Robbie flew to New Hampshire. Now, I know you're probably thinking that when John saw Terry, he would instantly know that she was Robbie, but you'd be wrong. To him, Terry carried herself differently from Robbie. On November 12, 1982, Robbie and John went to the local newspaper, the Keen Centennial, to put Robbie's obituary in the paper. After which, they went around town and, introdu- and introduced Terry to Robbie's co-workers and friends. Upon seeing Terry, many people immediately knew that she was Robbie without a doubt. Rumors began to spread around town about Robbie and Terry. Maybe she was a bank robber, or maybe she had stolen someone's identity, were questions that were asked when Terry wasn't around. John and Terry were oblivious to these whispers, though. The couple had bonded over their grief, and it wouldn't be long before Terry moved in with John, and they started a romantic partnership. She found work as a secretary at Book Press, a bookkeeping company, located right across the state line in Brattleboro, Vermont, and quickly settled into her new life. Back at Terry's old job, Central Screw, many of Robbie's co-workers had questions and they wanted answers. So they looked at Robbie's obituary and then got their Nancy Drew on. First, the Medical Research Institute of Texas, the hospital that Robbie's body was supposed to be donated to, did not exist. Then, when they checked obituaries and coroner's reports in the Dallas area around the date of November 10th, 1982, when Robbie was supposed to have died, they found no record of her or any record that resembled her. The curious co-workers would take their findings to the manager, Essential Screw, Ron Oha, who too became curious, and he started to look into the matter. It quickly became clear to the community that something was wrong. The rumors changed from questioning whether Robbie and Terry were the same person to questioning who this woman really was and what she could possibly be hiding from. Soon, the whispers around town would reach the ears of Detective Bob Hardy of the Keene Police Department, and he was curious. He dissected the obituary and tried to verify the information, but he couldn't either. So he reached out to other law enforcement agencies, and before long, he got a potential lead. Terry seemed to match the description of a fugitive wanted for robbing a bank. But under a further investigation, it was concluded that Terry could possibly be another fugitive named Terry Lynn Clifton. On January 12, 1983, a cold winter morning, police officers approached Terry at her job at Brick Press, convinced that they knew exactly who she really was. When they asked her for her real name, she at first looked shocked and then told them that she was Audrey 
Marie Healy. She claimed that she was wanted in Alabama for bad check charges and didn't tell them that she was also wanted for her husband's murder. On January 19, 1983, Marie was back in Anderson for the first time in three years. She was officially charged with the murder of Frank Healy, and her bond was set at $320,000, which no one paid, and she remained in jail until her trial. During the three years that Marie had been gone, a massive manhunt had been conducted over several states. Carol made a full recovery, and it wasn't long before Carol and Marie reunited. This was a conflicting time for Carol. On one hand, she knew that her mother had nearly killed her, but she still loved her. The pair began to meet frequently, and Carol wanted to believe that her mother would never hurt her. This concerned prosecutors who weren't sure if Carol would be able to testify against her mother. When Marie finally went to trial, her defense team wasted no time trying to paint Carol as an unstable woman who poisoned herself and that Marie was innocent in the matter. When Carol was called to the stand, she told the court that she had suffered from suicidal thoughts before but that she didn't try to poison herself. She also testified that her mother did give her injections in the hospital that she claimed were painkillers that she got from a nurse. Frida Adcock, Frank's sister, would also take the sand, where she talked about finding a bag containing jars of baby food, a small spoon, and a bottle of rat poison in Marie's home. She told the court that Marie would also give Frank an injection. Then, Eve Cole would corroborate Carol's story that Marie was giving Carol injections. The defense continued to say that Carol poisoned herself and that Frida was lying because she didn't like Marie. But then, the prosecution would share some extremely damning evidence. When Marie was arrested in 1979, Lieutenant Gary Carell interviewed her, but Marie didn't realize that this interview was taped. On the tape, Marie tried to avoid answering any questions. She would eventually admit that she did, in fact, give Carol injections that she claimed was medicine. She told him that she got these injections from a mother of a nurse at Carraway Methodist Hospital. Further investigation would show that no nurse with a name or who matched a description worked there. Mike was also called to the sand. At first, he tried to defend his mother, but he would go on to talk about his mother's financial problems and the sudden illnesses in the family that seemed to follow Marie. <clears throat> his letter to the Calhoun County coroner, which he assumed would remain confidential, was also brought into evidence. In it, he had written, quote, It is my belief that she properly injected my father with arsenic as she apparently done to my sister, unquote. The jury would deliberate for just three hours before they came back with a verdict. Marie was convicted on the murder of Frank Healy and the attempted murder of Carol Healy. The next day, she received a life sentence plus 20 years. Once again, Marie proclaimed her innocence. On June 9, 1983, Marie entered to Twiller State Prison 
in Wetumpka, Alabama. She was assigned a job as a data processor and was classified as a medium security prisoner. Despite many reports that she constantly talked about escaping, she was reclassified in 1985 as a minimum security prisoner, which made her eligible for passes and leaves from the prison. On February 19, 1987, after four separate eight-hour passes were successfully executed, Marie was given a furlough, which allowed her to leave the prison for three days, after which she was expected to return to the prison, but Marie had other plans. On February 19th, she left the prison for good. John Holman was still Marie's husband, and he moved to Anderson to be near her. He picked her up from the prison, and the couple spent the first two days relaxing in a motel. On Sunday, Marie told John that she wanted some alone time so that she could visit her mother's grave and that she would meet him at a local restaurant when she was done. John, of course, obliged, hugging Marie and sending her on her way, not knowing that this would be the last time he would see her again. A few hours later, John was waiting at the restaurant for Marie, but she never showed up, so he went back to the motel where he found a note that Marie left him. In it, she asked him for his forgiveness and told him that she had to leave, but promised him that they would be together again one day. John called law enforcement, but to be honest, investigators weren't sure if they could find her again. On February 26, 1987, an unusually cold, rainy day, a panicked 911 call was made. On it, a woman describes finding a strange woman on her porch who was frazzled and delirious. Minutes later, an ambulance arrived and rushed this woman to the hospital. During the ride, her heart stopped and Marie Healy was dead. Marie had been running in the woods for seven days in extremely cold rain. She was wearing thin, light clothes that were no match for the weather. On her final day, she stumbled into the yard. She stumbled into the yard of a former acquaintance, Sue Craft, and begged her for help. At the time, Sue didn't even recognize Marie. Marie was known for being this well-put-together woman, but after being in the rain for several days, she looked disheveled and was suffering from hypothermia. On February 28, 1987, Marie was buried beside the husband she murdered, Frank Healy.